This is a Baby Brunch podcast. This podcast is proudly brought to you by FedHealth. FedHealth's FlexiFed 2 and 3 options offer superb maternity and childhood benefits, including its free FedHealth baby program to see members through their pregnancy and parenting journeys. Choose FedHealth for trusted medical aid cover that gives you choice, flexibility and control, and that will be with you through every stage of your family's unique journey. FedHealth. We let you be you. World Hearing Day is held on the 3rd of March each year to raise awareness on how to prevent deafness and hearing loss and to promote ear and hearing care across the world. To create awareness and to get your attention, I decided to title this podcast a common term that most of us at some stage with our toddlers have used before. You know, my child does not listen. The question is, can they hear us? You've asked us also to talk about uh, babies and their hearing, and today this podcast is all about that. At some stage, you've asked your child to do something very calmly, very rationally, and very deliberately, and instead of action, you get no action, perhaps radio silence. Today, we're joined by Doctor of Audiology, Natalie Buttress, qualified audiologist from nbhearing.co.za and reconnectnetwork.co.za as well as Bronwyn von Weyck, qualified audiologist and PhD student in early hearing intervention. You can find her on hearclearsa.com. Ladies, a warm welcome to Baby Brunch, the parenting series. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. <laughs> <laughs> Natalie, we're going to start with you. I mean, I'm very excited to, to chat to you today because I remember when we worked together many, many years ago. In fact, I had my hearing tested with NB Hearing many, many years ago. And just creating and doing research on today's podcast, I had to say to myself, I haven't done it in a while and I'm responsible for my health and for checkups. But let's get started with what audiology is about. If there's a mom or parent listening, what is audiology? Okay, so audiology concerns itself with being able to hear and the sixth sense, much neglected, being able to balance. And we work with people of all ages. So from the moment a child is born, in fact, even in utero, we know that children are hearing, but from a moment that a child is born, all the way up into our old age, our ability to communicate and respond is underpinned by our hearing. And of course, our ability to move correctly and um, maintain our position in space is governed by our balance. So audiologists help people identify if there are any areas that need management or treatment and also just help people prevent and and, uh, support their ear and balance health. Immediately, it makes me think of the role of an ENT, and I'm, I'm struggling to almost see the difference. What would, what would an ENT do different to an audiologist? Perhaps, Bronwyn, you want to start off with that? Yes, yeah, sure. So an ENT, um, if there's something going on in the ear that is maybe causing a hearing loss that can be treated medically, so in terms of uh, medication that could be prescribed or surgery, then an ENT would be the doctor to go to. Um, an audiologist often works in conjunction with an ENT. So we could um, perhaps do a hearing test before the surgery and then do a hearing test after surgery to see the difference that the surgery has made with hearing. 
But if the um, if the problem lies and it cannot be treated medically, then an audiologist would do a hearing assessment, determine where the problem lies in the ear and what the best route to follow would be to re- alleviate or manage the problem. Natalie, I've also learned now that when we talk audiology, there's there's a lot that goes into this. So not just hearing loss, but also prevention. Um, there's various testing and strategies. I'm interested in one that I discovered, and that's balance. Unpack that for me. What what is how important is balance? And I mean, now I'm thinking of Reconnect Network because when I, was in, I visited your site and now I see that there's a lot of connections between audiology and our eyes and OT for our children. Mm. And but, but let's get back to balance. What does that mean to an audiologist and especially to us as mums with our children? Sure. Um, I, I think that like any other capacity that we have, we're born with all the ability to develop the skills we need. So we have organs and structures that are designed to balance, but it matures over a period of time. So um, being able to listen and hear is the same thing. You mature your listening over time. So balance does that too. So as a child is beginning to learn to crawl, sit, uh, walk, climb, jump, all of those kinds of things um, rely on the interaction between how our head moves Um, Our position in space is sensed by our body with contact to the ground. Um, And of course, um, our eyes feed back to the centers of balance in our brain. And all of those collect together along with our muscles to actually keep us upright. Or if, you know, if you're tumbling or on purpose um, to actually tumble in the right direction as a child. Um, And the reason that it's very much multidisciplinary is because there's so many different things that can affect how well we can balance because of all these systems. So we often work in a multidisciplinary relationship with other professionals to help kids who are maybe not attaining their balance as well as they can. And often that will come up in fear of being in motion like on a merry-go-round or not being comfortable learning to ride a bike, those might indicate that a child would need a little bit of help nudged in the right direction to get better balance. Now, what if a child doesn't listen? And I, I looked into Bronwyn's research and, and we, we were chatting in the week and, you know, the one of the messages came back that uh, one in 18 children born in South or, or 18 children born in South Africa a day can't hear. Bronwyn, is that statistic correct? Did I say it correctly? Yes, that's correct, Ilana. So our, we it's so difficult for South Africa because we don't have a centralized database. Right. So we're estimating that approximately 18 babies are born every day in South Africa with some degree of hearing loss that is going to impact their speech and language development. So, so the reason I had a smirk and a giggle is because even though that's your statistic, I've probably heard from every mom in South Africa. <laughs> and, so, and so I'm wondering, but is it not just them choosing not to, but perhaps it has nothing to do with their ears? You know, are they not trying to assert their power or is it not a type of behavior? Perhaps they're just being expressive. You know, they're busy with this morning. I said to my daughter, can you please come to the bathroom to brush your teeth? And she said, sure. And she first dressed her whole dinosaur 
before she came to the bathroom. <laughs> and, you know, because we were doing this today, I just thought I'm not gonna, even going to be impatient because I'm going to learn today why you're actually not responding to what I'm saying, you know. Yeah. Is it is it not just behavior? So, I mean, I can relate to those moms because I think I've got two kids myself and my daughter, I think, has probably had the most hearing tests in the world <laughs> because at some point you kind of feel it has to be a hearing problem. So, um. You know, if a child is displaying a consistent lack of listening, um, the first step I would suggest is to have a hearing test because everyone always thinks that a hearing loss is a all hearing is an all or nothing sense that you can either hear perfectly fine or you can hear nothing at all, and and that's a very big myth is that you can hear some sounds perfectly fine and maybe have a problem at other frequencies or other sounds. Mm -hmm. So the first step is to definitely have your, your child's hearing tested. And then the second step would be to look at potentially looking at um, the hearing might be fine, but how does the brain process what is being heard? And maybe a child doesn't like to have a lot of background noise. So they can't distinguish between a background noise and speech and where to pay attention to. So if mommy's calling me and the TV's on, I just block out mommy's voice because I'm focused on the TV. So mm -hmm. there are lots of different things that play a role with listening skills. It would be first hearing, then the processing of what the brain receives, and then also attention. So we always start at hearing and, and kind of diverse go further and deeper to see exactly where the problem lies. I just want to jump in here yes, and just definitely. say that, um, you know, it's extremely rare to find a child that electively doesn't listen. Mm -hmm. You know, so, so saying that a child is naughty because they're not listening is highly unlikely. It usually is a behavior that belongs to some other set of behaviors developed either from an original hearing loss that might not even be there anymore because hearing there's certain types of hearing loss that might not be consistent and a child may have had a bit of hearing loss like you know when you get a cold or something and your ears block up now you've got a softer level of sound and during that period of time it may if it's for long enough it may actually delay some of the skills that are meant to develop to listen with attention and be able to remember what we hear and be able to put it into the right sequence. So those are kinds of things that can happen even when the hearing tests normal. Those are things that might have appeared at some point in the child's development. And I, I just think, you know, it's, it's something that would be wonderful to get across to moms that um, we don't make the assumption that a child is being deliberately obstructive and that we are rather look at whether there might be factors that can be influencing the way that the child is processing your instructions. And that's why it's a good starting point to actually know whether this is something that needs to be managed or whether there are some techniques that a mom can use at home to enhance the child's listening skills and gradually bring them back to where they should be. Now, this is super interesting to me, and I know in a while we will come to, to testing, and but hearing is everything. And so when you're talking about the habit to not listen eventually because perhaps of a cold or it's related to other behavior, I'm just thinking of our littlies that will eventually go to school or that needs to hear traffic or a car or a ball hop or piano sounds when we learn music. And so 
it's everything. So it brings me to this testing and detection in our babies. And Bronwyn, give me details on how it's actually done. I'll tell you what happened to me. So I had my first baby and I'm, I'm in hospital and, you know, you, you've just had your Caesar and you don't really want too many visitors. You only want to see Oma and Opa and, and mom and dad. And, and I had people knock on my door. So from the nurses to, to at, on this particular day, the lady that was supposed to administer the hearing test. And I actually sent her away. I said to her, I've had too many visitors. Mm. I don't want more people here. Can you please leave me alone? And off she went. And my first baby's ears were never and hearing was never tested. And second baby comes um, years later and she's premature. And I have my preemie. And of course, now I'm more worried and concerned about development and that she's going to need a little bit of TLC. So in comes the hearing lady. And I'm not sure if it was the same one, but it was the same hospital. And she knocks on the door and in she comes. And I say, please, mm. please do the test. And immediately we think because the second one struggled, mm. you know, with so much more and, and she might have development issues, we were keen to do the test. And today I have a lot of guilt around it. Thank goodness, you know, there's nothing wrong now. Mm -hmm. But I, I really need our parents to know how it's done, whether it is painful mm -hmm. for, for, for baby, mm -hmm. so that more of us can actually do it. Yes, so for a baby, it's a, such a quick test. It's a really quick test and it's not painful at all. So we're not going to hurt your baby. We do put something into the ear to do to perform the test. And so it can be a bit ticklish. So sometimes we do get a little reaction from the baby. They might squirm a little bit, but it's not because it's painful. Um, it's not going to hurt in any way. And the other thing that's important to realize is that we're not testing, we're not putting a loud sound into the ear. So the, we're not going to damage the ear. The test isn't going to damage the ear in any way. We actually put a very soft level um, sound into the ear. And um, we don't look at the baby's reaction to the sound. So I know a lot of the moms are kind of like, okay, so what must I look for now while you're doing the test? We want the baby to be quiet sleeping, they can drink a bottle, suck a dummy, um, because we're not looking at their reaction. It's not a reliable way to test a baby's hearing. So we take the reaction out completely because we know that the baby can't tell us if they can hear or not. And our technology has advanced so much that we can actually do a hearing screening test for a baby. So basically what happens is we put a little probe into the ear and the machine will send a sound into the ear. And then the machine is actually looking to record an echo that must come back from the hearing organ or the cochlea. And if we get that echo back, we know that that cochlea is functional and the baby will pass the hearing screening test. So if the baby doesn't pass, then we want to test again in about two to six weeks um, and then we start the process of perhaps looking further and doing a diagnostic test and intervention if the baby doesn't pass the first test. Now, now having a baby, I mean, immediately you think another test. And, and in the case of the preemie, you know, there was antibiotics and this, and you can't see them now. We're busy with procedures and et cetera, et cetera. What's the duration of the assessment for small babies? So newborn uh, how long does it take about? So a screening test will take about maximum a minute per ear. So it's really a quick test. 
where if we're doing a diagnostic test, so um, later on on the pathway, if a baby hasn't passed a few hearing screenings, we'll do a diagnostic test. And that can take between an hour and an hour and a half. But that is a comprehensive assessment. The screening test is, is very quick. Natalie, immediately I'm thinking of visiting your practice and learning that newborn stage is not the last time that you need to have ears tested. How regularly do we we call on you guys to have a, a hearing test? Well, Ilana, firstly, let me just um, move between those two points that you've made and to say that long before your baby starts making their first meaningful sounds, there's a lot of learning that's happening through that hearing channel. So again, to reinforce how important it is to screen at that early stage because there's auditory learning happening from that early point. And and what is happening along the way is a combination of learning how and getting feedback for sounds that they make to us. And then we make a lovely little sound back because they've made a sound and they hear that and that's a positive reinforcement. So it slowly grows their appreciation that sound does something, that they can manipulate their environment using sound. And that's why speech and language develops, because they realize that if they make a certain type of noise, mom does something. And then they hear that noise too, and they start. it starts to reinforce how they develop speech and language. Um, and because of those associations that are so important that we lay those connections down in our brain, that, you know, you know what a zip sounds like. If I play you a zip, you'll be able to identify this is a zip that I'm listening to. It's a unique sound. We've connected the sound to the object or the action in our brains. And that is happening all the way through childhood development. So I would certainly recommend that a child below the age of five is tested once a year. Um, Certainly just before school starts, it's very important to have a hearing screening. And we're, again, not talking about an involved diagnostic. We're really just talking about checking that at the normal levels that we would expect a child is actually responding. And then as we move into the sort of teens, um, of course, we want um, teenagers to be aware of protecting their hearing because our world is very noisy. So it might be good periodically to have a hearing check and to also advise for some prevention. Um, Early adulthood is probably the least risky period because we're very aware of what we can and can't hear and we've got healthy ears and healthy hearing. So usually you can stretch your tests a few years apart through early adulthood But come the 40s, you want to be starting to test again, kind of just along with eyes. We know that eyes deteriorate a little bit sometime in our 40s, so you also want to be checking your hearing. And then by the age of 50, you should have had a good adult hearing test by then as a good baseline to compare the future. And then, of course, once we hit our 60s and up, well, now we're kind of expecting some age-related hearing loss to be taking place and it's a good idea to intervene earlier rather than later, even when we get older, because our brains are able to maintain our skills better as we age if we can hear well. So it's a supportive brain function to hear well. Now, this is super educational because, you know, if you've never been to an audiologist, you associate loss of hearing with the old lady, with the apparatus on her ear or she says excuse me the whole time or you speak really slowly so that she can perhaps see your mouth move and your lips so that she can understand. I'm thinking particularly about our parents listening to this conversation who 
might perhaps think it's too late because they already feel like their toddlers have been affected. Is there such a thing as too late or can you miraculously fix us? That's a good question. Um, I don't want to say that there's there's ever a too late because early intervention means that you do something as soon as you know there is a problem. Of course, with very young children, we want to identify hearing loss the earlier the better because there are other developing skills, academic skills, language and speech skills that are going to rely on that good hearing. And in that respect, there are fewer choices available to a parent whose child has a hearing loss as the child gets older. There's always something that we can do, but there are fewer choices than if we identify it really early on. Mm -hmm. Um, When it comes to older adults, Again, intervention at an early point is not necessarily about the ear itself, but about how well the brain retains its function. Um, And those skills can be retaught, but it takes time. So if Mm. you've taken five years to take care of a hearing loss, one can expect that it would take two and a half years after you've fitted with some device that provides you with better hearing or better sound to your hearing, that at least about half the time that you've had the hearing loss would help to redevelop some of the skills that you are now missing. Um, so it is it is important, but it's never too late. And as Maya Angelou says, if you know better, you do better. So I think knowledge is key. And that's where good hearing checks with some regularity comes in because you may not even realize that you've developed some hearing loss. It can be a very slow process and you may not know that you're not hearing things as clearly as you did before. And the only way you can know for sure is to have a test that's under calibrated conditions. Bronwyn, talking about you know the, our, our second chance, it feels like we have, we have a second chance by hearing this information. We we want our little ones to speak well, mm. you know, and, and when they say mommy or daddy too late because we do compare, mm. you know, mm. to, to other babies and, and other children's milestones, surely toddler speech could be affected. I mean, is that is that something or a situation common that, that, that comes to your practice? Do mommies and daddies arrive with children who don't speak well and, and now we need to do work? Um, yes, Ilana, definitely. Um, I think there's also a false sense of um, security in having a baby that has passed newborn hearing screening. And we sort of feel that um, parents may feel that that guarantees hearing for the rest of their life. And it it isn't so. By passing a newborn hearing screening test, we can say that the hearing at birth was fine. But anything can interfere with hearing development later on. And so that's why it's so important the, f- the fruit of hearing is speech development. So if your child is struggling to speak and is not hitting the speech milestones, let's have a hearing test, have a hearing test done and make sure. Rather be safe than, safer than sorry because we have this critical time of development where we want our children to be able to speak um, clearly and properly and learn the language and stimulate their brain in that sense. Um, So it's always better to have a hearing test on an annual basis with the little one. And if your child is not reaching their speech milestones, then look for help and start with a hearing test and let's let's see what's happening. 
Natalie, I don't mean to backtrack, but a thought just came to mind. And I'm thinking of little people with little glasses because we've had the eye tested. Mm. Is there is there a relation between having bad eyesight and also having bad hearing? That's a good question. It depends on the cause of the bad eyesight. Okay. So there are things that can cause an eyesight problem on its own. And there are things that can cause sensory problems that might affect both hearing and sight. Mm. Um, And so, again, you know, in good hands with caring practitioners, you get to explore what your unique situation is and all the solutions that are, are developed together with you. Because, I mean, parents are probably the most important members of the team. They are with the child 24-7, no one knows your child the way you know your child. Mm. So a good practitioner will really listen to you about your concerns, about what you think is happening. And then their job is to help confirm your concerns one way or the other, or, you know, obviously eliminate your concerns, but also to help you plan what else might need to be tested depending on what is found? So there, if we, you do find a hearing problem and if it comes from a reason that could affect eyesight or something else, then the recommendation will be made to use the multidisciplinary team and have a couple of other assessments to make sure that it hasn't impacted another development area. There's two things that you just said that, that you know, I every time I do a podcast, I become almost emotional because a part of me feels, oh, I wish I knew you sooner. Mm-hmm. Nadia, you just said that the parents is the most important. You know, as a, as a young mom, everyone wants to give advice, but you know, you are the parent, you're the expert of the child. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that you said is team. You know, I think of our children's teeth and this, and and I never take the first um, point of contact or advice as 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 fact, you know. I always look for ways to just make sure that the first person, that they were correct, you know, and it's really reassuring to hear that there's a team of people. I know that you're all part of this network where if there's one kind of, let's say, let's just call it a problem, then there's, you know, one expert that will be able to solve it or many, but that you consult a team of people that has the best interests at heart for our children. I have another health-related question, and I mean, Bronwyn, perhaps this is for an ENT, mm-hmm. but one of the things that's often discussed on the mommy group, you know, is is if the child has an ear infection, then she wouldn't put the finger in the ear, you know, they cut the ear because they can't talk and say, mommy, the ear is broken or mm-hmm. sore or it's painful and so on. Have you experienced in, in your practice that that moms or dads arrive with baby that have had an ear infection and that there's permanent damage because, you know, in, in our heads, when you hear ear infection, you think of this explosion of the eardrum and that they will be harmed forever because they're on this antibiotic now and needs to be fixed. So, um, Ilana, just to answer your question, um, I've walked a, a journey as a mom with a child who had recurrent ear infections and had to have grommets and, um, so I understand the, the journey that parents will walk with um, children with recurrent ear infections. And, and what we see is that one ear infection doesn't necessarily do damage. There will be a period where that child doesn't get the adequate signal, doesn't hear properly for that period. 
but it's usually a recurrence and a build up um, of ear infections that might do some permanent damage. And sometimes it can affect the hearing, sometimes not. But we're seeing with the children with middle ear infections is that going for periods without adequate sound may affect their speech development, their language development, and the way their brain processes the sound. So um, it's, you know, every child is unique and every child is an individual. So we have to look at every case individually and uniquely um, to determine what is going on. Elana, I want to just add something to what Bronwyn was saying. Um, I think parents are, what is a grommet? You know, that it's such a, a weird word. And I, I think what's really important is that an ear infection might lead to um, an inflamed process in the ear areas that would normally drain the fluid that our ear makes to clean itself. And then instead of the ear fluid being able to easily drain out of the eustachian tube and down into our throat, which is what normally happens, that little tube gets closed up, the fluid builds up in the middle ear. And at that stage, it doesn't always have an infection in it. It's just got fluid buildup that does impact the way that somebody hears. And then sometimes we don't do anything about it and the inflammatory process goes down and then the fluid starts to drain. And now a little bit of that fluid had some of the infection in it and it reinfects the tube. So this is a way that we're getting recurring ear infections that impact the process. And eventually, if there's if that fluid that's sitting inside the ear is both infected but also becomes very thick, then even with an antibiotic that's meant to reduce the inflammation of the tissue in the tube so that fluid can drain down, the fluid has now become too thick to drain naturally. And that's what a grommet is all about because a grommet is a small little tube placed inside the eardrum where you can now deliver a type of eardrop that will help to dissolve that fluid back into a more liquid structure and that'll allow the drainage so that you can clear the ear and that the antibiotic that you're using along with that grommet is finally able to get rid of it. So, you know, a grommet is very seldom the very first ear infection and the very first step that an ear, nose and throat specialist would take. It's usually when you're seeing a child with repeated problems or with a chronic problem that is not resolving with normal treatment. So it's funny that you say that, Natalie, because we had eight ear infections in one year mm-hmm. and then the result was grommets. Yeah. And so I've walked the grommets and, and tonsillitis path with an ENT and I believe in ENTs as well. I speak for a living, mm-hmm. so I need to know what my throat looks like. So I often go and let them check it out and see if everything still works and operates. But it makes me think of a story. So the, my eldest had a grommets done and now the ear is healed and everything's fine and we haven't had an ear infection in a while. But she did say to me that things sometimes sounds too loud. Mm. So I know we associate audiology with hearing loss, mm. but is it always is it sometimes the other way around? If if sound is too loud, is that a red flag? So first I'm going to say to you that you need to consider audiology as work related to the entire hearing channel. It's not just the ear, which is the peripheral or the outside portion, but it's every part that goes from the ear into the bottom of the brain, into the part of the brain that we start to decode the information and even connected to the other areas of the brain where those associations with sound are made. And very often this sound sensitivity 
It can be part of a general sensory issue, which obviously then is a multidisciplinary thing. But if it's after a period of grommets or something like that, remember, your child had a period of time where they didn't hear normally. There was fluid. Everything got much quieter. Now you've had grommets and the ear has been nicely cleared and the world sounds much brighter and more distinct again which is unusual to have that period of quietness followed by much more sound all over again. And there's an acclimatization process that a child might need to have to get used to the world sounding so bright and so loud again. One of the things that we see is in terms of association, if a mom or a dad reacts, if the child says, you know, that's so loud, that vacuum cleaner is making, it's hurting my ears. Mm. And if our reaction is a fear response or an anxiety response, oh my goodness, my darling, I can't believe it. This must be part of your ear infection. I think we're going to have to go back to the doctor again. The child starts to pair up a fear-related response with the sound that's louder And then it's almost as if their brain has set a little attention flag for any time a sound is really loud. And they start to develop a conditioned response to louder sound being a problem for them. That would be very different to a mom going, oh yeah, that's a noisy vacuum cleaner. Don't worry about it, it'll be off soon. It's it's not going to do any harm. You know, that kind of reassurance for your child is as important as reassurance for you when something's not dangerous. And that normal kinds of sounds that we listen to that are loud but are not, you know, we're not talking about gunshots here. We're just talking about normal everyday sounds that are a bit on the louder side. As long as you're not in them for huge amounts of time, they are not dangerous to our hearing for short periods. So reassuring your child is the first step to not creating an unnatural association with loud sound. But if it persists, a good audiologist will have a look at you and the story and the child and the history. And there are very good therapies that can help your child normalize their response to loud sound again. Bronwyn, how important is the, and I'm thinking of the five moms that I can think of just having this chat how important is it to visit an audiologist when there's also an ENT because I can reassure you that none of us visited the audiologist when we had grommets or tonsillitis or Mm. none of us have done Mm. it so Ilana I would definitely you know I love to have a baseline before the operation if it's possible if we have a child that we can test um And we can get a baseline of the hearing before the operation and then sort of wait a week, about two to three weeks, and then potentially do a hearing test after the operation. It just shows what's happening in that ear and the difference the grommet has made. Um, If after the operation you feel your child is fine and you feel that they're listening and their hearing behavior is fine, then just go in every six months, and let's just check, you know, we can do a pressure test to see if that grommet is opening and doing its job, and then also just do a screening to make sure that your child is hearing the sounds correctly, because the other thing is that at some point, a grommet could perhaps get blocked if there's a a secondary infection, so we do need to check on that grommet um, after the operation has taken place. Natalie, flying with children, why does it hurt so much? I've been there, (laughs) I'm still there, and 
I need help. <laughs> well, let me just quickly mention that mine are 15 and 19, and thank goodness I'm not there anymore, but I totally <laughs> get it. <laughs> um, okay, so, so the reason that little babies get so uncomfortable is all about that pressure exchange, again, down that little tube. And you can imagine if the pressure's growing inside the middle ear, so it's almost like a little chamber and it's supposed to have this beautiful pressure equalization tube that comes down into the throat. But if air is not going in or out, depending on whether you're ascending or descending in the flight, there becomes a difference between the middle ear's pressure and the outside. And that starts giving sensation of discomfort. Um, one of the things that might be quite important in general to avoid that is that when prior to the age of two, the face is obviously much shorter. And so the tube that runs from the ear into the throat, instead of going almost vertically, goes more horizontally. And then if a mom feeds her baby lying down and the milk is being sucked into the mouth, the milk can go up the tube. And obviously that's a foreign object and it's an irritant because it's not meant to be there. So the body starts to develop either an inflammatory process or extra fluid to try and flush it out. And lo and behold, that'll be the moment that you have to fly somewhere. That that's going on and your baby's ear is not equalizing nicely. And now you're on the plane and you've got a slightly blocked ear. It's not efficient and it's developing a pressure response. So we recommend that moms feed their babies at at least 45 degrees of angle so that a bottle is never being fed to a baby that's lying flat. Um, you know, after the age of two, uh, we still would recommend that toddlers don't lie flat when they drink, even, you know, there's a choking risk as well. But again, it's less of a risk as the tube becomes more and more vertical with time. If my husband had to hear this now, he'll say, it's the milk, it's the milk, because my toddler still wants milk. <laughs> well, we need the milk. You know, I, I mean, we, we certainly not, we're not advocating not to feed your kid. Please feed your kid. Just, you know, take, take a responsible feeding posture to help your baby's ears stay healthy. Oh, what about headphones for children? You know, we, we've had podcasts, chats, conversations, videos special broadcasts around children and devices. And we've all given our child something. But what about the headphones? You know, we they've upgraded. <laughs> I'm going to mention the whole world. I think our world is much noisier. I mean, I'm a child of the yeah. 70s, so that's a while ago. And it was definitely a quiet world. Oh, dear, Natalie. I know, shh, don't <laughs> tell anyone. Um, but, but certainly I think our world is noisier. We spend more time in noise than we ever used to. And um, our what used to be quiet time, playing outside and climbing trees and being in a garden, has now become to some degree a screen time or a listening to music or sometimes they're listening to podcasts. So a lot more listening is being done. And if we think about the ears, cells as a wear and tear structure, over an entire lifetime, more sound exposure could potentially lead to earlier hearing loss. And we are certainly seeing that in our older people, that more, more sound is leading to some level of increased hearing loss. What we'd like to see is for the awareness to take place firstly, that we need breaks. Our ears also need quiet. Um, and in terms of, you know, getting a teenager to stop using earphones is almost mm -hmm. impossible. So <laughs> a great rule to live by is something called the 60-60 rule. 
60 decibels is the normal level of conversation. So if your child is wearing earphones and you can conduct a normal conversation with them, then it would we would assume that the level that they're listening to is fairly safe. If you have to take the earphones off just to speak to them or you can't even get their attention with the earphones on, give those earphones a listen yourself and make sure that they're not set too loudly. You want to be around about 60 decibels. And there are lots of apps, by the way, that can measure the output of sound. So you can put the phone's microphone next to the earphone and get an idea of whether you're close to 60 decibels. And then the other part of that 60-60 rule is time. You don't want to expose the ear to a longer period of time than it should be exposed to sound. So 60 decibels for 60 minutes is usually totally safe, and then you should have a break from it. Um, Ilan, if I can just add to what Natalie said, um, we're seeing that the average age of hearing loss is becoming younger and younger and younger, and it's because we're in a noisy world. So the research from America um, is actually showing that our teenagers are so, the hearing behavior is so risky that one in six teenagers is now developing a hearing loss. And it's due to this exposure to so, too much sound for too long. And so, and that is completely preventable. Wow. Ladies, well, with World Hearing Day, we want to raise confident, social, academically successful children. And I want to know what your message is to everyone who's listening to this podcast. Uh, together with reconnectnetwork.co.za, I really want you to visit that website. Natalie, from you, what can you tell us about World Hearing Day? And as an audiologist, what would you like to achieve? I think, firstly, the theme of World Hearing Day this year is hearing care for all. I can't underline the word all enough. We have ears for a reason. It's one of our primary senses. It's something that is sadly neglected. And we know that there are many people who can't access hearing health care for either financial or distant reasons. So that's something that's a real global challenge. But if you're in the fortunate position to be able to look after your hearing health care, then you should take a more active role in it. Um, and to say that, you know, our network of audiologists as well as as our professional association. So, you know, we obviously have many audiologists in the country, um, some who are part of our network, some who are not. Um, And we are well-trained, educated practitioners who desire to to return people to a normal quality of life and ensure that we prevent future hearing loss. And if anybody takes up the cudgels this year, of all years, this is this is the year that you should be thinking about hearing care for all, from your baby all the way to your grandparents. <laughs> Bronwyn, from your side? I think the message that I would like to send out is that there is so much hope out there for ears. And take take control of your hearing health and seek help with a an audiologist. Our audiologists are fantastic. We are caring people. We care about our patients and we want to improve their well-being because we realize how important hearing is. Thanks to both of you, Bronwyn and Natalie, for more information about Baby Branch. You can go to babybranch.co.za. Also find out more about Natalie Buttress nb-hearing.co.za and 
reconnectnetwork.co.za. You can find Bronwyn van Veek on hereclearsa.com as well as reconnectnetwork.co.za. This podcast is proudly brought to you by FedHealth. FedHealth's FlexiFed 2 and 3 options offer superb maternity and childhood benefits, including its free FedHealth baby program to see members through their pregnancy and parenting journeys. Choose FedHealth for trusted medical aid cover that gives you choice, flexibility and control, and that will be with you through every stage of your family's unique journey. FedHealth. We let you be you.